The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. She was able to explain things about the difficulties I was having in my personal life as an academic, which was a failed career, right? Mm. Um, she, she explained it to me in a way that said to me, this isn't just your individual failings. You have not just screwed up your life. You have been in a structure which made it difficult for you. But at the end of those difficulties, you can come through because Virginia Woolf did and shows you the way. Mm, that's author Gillian Gill talking about the influence that Virginia Woolf had on her as an aspiring young scholar. And at this point, we can multiply her experience by thousands, if not millions, as Virginia Woolf's life and works have inspired generations of young women, and men too, but especially women. But who were the women who inspired Virginia Woolf? How did their example help to shape her, for better or worse? And how did Virginia Woolf through her relationship with and understanding of the women of the 19th century come to change the world of the 20th century and beyond. We'll talk about all of this with today's guest, Jillian Gill, author of the new biography, Virginia Woolf and the Women Who Shaped Her World, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. Not the one lying in the ditch with the towel over his head. (laughs) Not today, anyway. And not the highly successful presider over 200 episodes of some of the best niche podcasting available. Well, maybe not the best, although I think I can say the audience for this little thing absolutely is the best. Second to none. Although... Before we get carried away with that, audience, if you're coming in second to none, maybe that's not so good. I've had an audience of none before. I remember what that was like. It was not all that great. So if you truly are second to none, maybe you need to work a little harder. Come on, audience. There's a million of you out there downloading this thing, and you're letting yourself get walloped by none? How pathetic. Maybe that should be your goal. For 2020, beat none. I'll try to do the same. Actually, the last time I saw a ranking, I was fourth in the world of literature-based podcasts, and the first three were shows dedicated to Harry Potter. So maybe I don't have much room to talk. But how can I compete with a wizard? I'd rather chase windmills. I'd rather go up against none. A wizard, How? Would, where would I even begin? He would cast spells... And what would I do? Spell? In any case, speaking of our audience today, we have some emails from listeners, and then we are going to talk to our guest, Jillian Gill, an acclaimed biographer and the writer of a fascinating new book. And we have a good hour or so with her talking about Virginia Woolf, and we unfortunately are only able to just scratch the surface. There's definitely a book worth buying. Maybe you have some Christmas cash. If you celebrate Christmas or some other holiday cash, maybe you got a present that mm, now that the relatives are gone, now that you're home alone with your loot, you might take another look at. You might think, hey, you over there, I don't really like you all that much. I pretended I did, but now I think I'd rather return you and exchange you for something else. Your relatives are well-intentioned, aren't they? audience, but they don't know you like I do, frankly. I know what you'd rather have, and you, my friend, would rather have this book by Jillian Gill. You will not regret it. Page after page of revealing anecdote, funny story, incisive detail, all of it in a conversational style that makes you think you're right there with Virginia and the rest of the Bloomsbury group, listening to a friend tell you stories about Virginia's life. Highly recommended. Also recommended, 
visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash literature. Once there, you can join the ranks of luminaries like Maria, Seth, and Oscar. My thanks to all of you and to all of our good patrons. We truly appreciate your support. Here's a note we got from Josh. Subject, Swift Podcast. Just a brief note to say that although I loved Swift before your podcast, I love him even more now. You conveyed his humanity, warts and all. Hmm. Well, you're very welcome, Josh. That's what we try to do here. God knows humanity has warts, and if we are any good, we will not flinch from the contemplation of them. Next up, an email from Warren. Subject, HFL. Hi, Jack. Thanks for your podcast. I listen while at the gym, usually in NYC and Charleston, SC. I work as an ER doc in Charleston, but my fiancé is based in Manhattan, so I'm back and forth frequently. I keep a record of my workouts so that later I can look back and see how I invested my time. As part of that record, I make note of what I listened to that day. Sometimes, when time seems to pass too quickly, it's nice to see that on December 1, for example, if nothing else, I listened to the episode on Fitzgerald. Episodes on Celine, Sandrars, Kerouac, and Henry Miller would all be welcome. Keep fighting the good fight. Warren. Warren. <laughs> I think you're fighting the good fight, working as an ER doctor. I'm sure you are stitching people up on a daily basis, taking care of broken bones and broken bodies. I'm very glad that you're not forgetting to take care of your own body in the process and that we are able to help you pass the time while you do. Your record-keeping is Mike Palindrome-esque. He would appreciate the cataloging of listening experiences. Thank you for the email. And from Sonia, subject Graham Green. Hi, Jack. I recently discovered your podcast, so I'm a bit late in my response to your Graham Green episode. In contrast to you, I only ever read him while just being at home, and I never really saw him as anything but British. To give a bit of context, I was born in Leeuwarden, a small provincial town in the north of Holland, and in the 80s, my parents thought it would be a good idea to move to Australia, Melbourne. After a year, due to homesickness, my parents moved back to Leeuwarden, and after high school, I decided to study English education. I currently work as an English teacher at our local university. A part of the course was reading English novels and poetry. The focus was very heavily on British novels and poetry. Perhaps in this context, as an outsider, I always felt that when reading American authors, the themes they seemed to be mostly concerned with were the failure of the American dream, struggling immigrants, frontier, and or slavery, or a combination of all three. These themes were not heavily explored by British authors before 1950. Also, or perhaps it's just me, the tone seems a bit darker or more desperate in American prose. But again, that could just be me. Back to Green. The Quiet American was required reading, and it is not one of my favorites. My favorites include Our Man in Havana, which I just thought was hilarious, and Monsignor Quixote, which truly is profoundly moving. So I absolutely agree on your observation that his novels are very different from one another in tone and topic. When looking at my bookcase, you'll find that Graham Greene is well represented, only slightly being outshone by Ian McEwan. She goes on to ask about some Dutch authors, which we will put on our list, things to explore for future episodes. And then she says, finally, in your show about first novels, I miss Donna Tartt's The Secret History. As for me, this remains her best book. I was a bit disappointed by the goldfinch. So to end, thank you for your insightful contemplations on literature, which you keep alive in your podcast. Greetings from Lou Warden, Sonia. Ah, Sonia, what a beautiful email. You are on the list of listeners whose lives I like to imagine from my little bunker here in Crazy Town, USA. I'm so glad you found the podcast, and I'm proud of the podcast for journeying all the way to Northern Holland, to Lou Warden, where, oh, which you modestly didn't mention, was the home not just of Matahari, but M.C. Escher. 
This small town, as you put it, was the European cultural capital of 2018. Sounds like a lovely place full of interesting and lively people. Thoughtful people. I agree with all your suggestions and your summary of American literature. The American dream, parentheses, and the failure of it. Immigrants and the frontier and the legacy of slavery are themes that will not be leaving us anytime soon. Our literature wrestles with our nation's ghosts, even when they are avoiding them. And maybe especially then. Thank you for the email, and I wish you all the best. Thanks to all of our emailers and listeners. Let's take a quick break and come back with our conversation with Jillian Gill and our discussion of the literary icon, Virginia Woolf. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Gillian Gill, expert in modern French literature and the author of several biographies, including works on Mary Baker Eddy, Florence Nightingale, and Agatha Christie. She joins us today to discuss her new work, Virginia Woolf and the Women Who Shaped Her World. Gillian Gill, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. What a delight to be talking about literature with people who are interested in it as I am. Ah, so I have to say, this book has been described as monumental, and I would agree with that assessment. <laughs> it's an extraordinary look at an extraordinary writer, and I am finding it absolutely riveting. I can't wait to dive in and ask questions about it. But first, I was hoping we could talk a little bit about yourself. So what would you like to know? So where were you in life when you first discovered Virginia Woolf? You know, it came late. It mm. came in my, I believe, because this is so long ago now in my life, I'm very old, um, in my 30s, because mm. I sort of, I had a strong, strong literary background, but almost entirely in French, Italian, and Latin. So English literature was something that I had read as a child, as it were. And mm. it wasn't until I got to be um, a young academic in America with a, you know, um, this was now the 70s, with a increasingly... Um, uh, exciting and lively feminist uh, movement going mm. literarily and in society. But suddenly I read, I think most importantly, I read To the Lighthouse, which has become a kind of talisman book for me. Mm. Um, yeah. And secondly, of course, uh, A Room of One's Own and Three Guineas, which I almost right. consider to be the same book. Um, and I also, I think, read... Um, uh, the set of her memoirs that were collected, um, Moments of Being, I believe it's called. So this is me reading this in the 1930s, I mean, in my mid-30s. 
surrounded by, I'm at Yale University at this point, um, I'm surrounded with deconstruction. You know, Derrida is coming to speak. Mm. Um, I'm su- surrounded with people who have absolutely no interest in what I found so compulsive in Wolf. Um, so I'm reading it alone. And yet, and this is where there's a big jump, when I come back having left academia behind, having left French literature behind, having very happily left deconstruction and um, post-structuralist <laughs> and colonialist discourse and that whole thing, and French feminism, I was huge into French feminism. I translated six or four or five books by the almost incomprehensible author, Lucie Rigarat. Um, so I delved into it, but then I come out of all that, I sort of read scramble my brain, become a writer, uh, write about Agatha Christie, who's obviously extremely British, and recover my British roots, as it were. Then suddenly, and I'm rereading my three or four published books, um, and I think so much of how I write, what I write, how I conceive the world, I have got from that early, lonely reading of Virginia Woolf. She was an icon for me, and I didn't even know it. It Mm. was as if, it's not just as if I read her, it was as if I I took her into my being. Mm. Um, uh, It was so profound. And so, in a way, coming back to her now is like reconstructing my own self in certain ways, as well as herself. Because she was so formative for you. Yes, and I... So formative, you know, that the most formative things are the things you're not in a way conscious of, that you absorb. I absorbed her. Yeah. Well, she's sort of, I mean, she has a lot of sides, but there seem like there are a couple of, a couple here worth uh, talking about in, in the context of how she inspired you. One would be just that she was such a powerful novelist and she was so... Uh, such a pioneer and so cutting edge on the the edge of modernism. But the other was she had a real side of being an essayist and a a, a social yes. critic and a, a, a biographer herself uh, in some ways. And and I'm wondering, right. did you take inspiration from both of those things or all of the above? All of the above, I would say. Mm-hmm. But you know, in some ways there is... Um, I mean, I would hesitate to say this because I, I wasn't... Um, uh, trained in English literature. Mm-hmm. It seems to me there's an English style, there's an English way, mm. um, and she has it, yeah. and I like it, and I, that's how I think, and so, and then of course, the way that she analyzed the feminine, or the feminist, or the female, or whatever you call it, the woman's predicament as a, as a, a person creating, a person in professional life, she put it all in non, in a way that seems non-ideological, that seems informal, chatty, and yet it is extremely informed, extremely based, and yet never pedantic. Um, and she was able to explain things about the difficulties I was having in my personal life as an academic, which was a failed career, right? Mm. Um, she, she explained it to me in a way that said to me, this isn't just your individual failings. You have not just screwed up your life. You have been in a structure which made it difficult for you. But at the end of those difficulties, you can come through because Virginia Woolf did and shows you the way. Mm. Well, let's talk about, uh, let's put her in context a little bit here, because I think what you're I think this flows right into something that I found very remarkable about your introduction. I had never really thought of it this way, but there's a real contradiction to sort through for us. We're looking back now a hundred years and we have the benefit of hindsight. We also have a bit of blindness due to hindsight, I think. And on the one hand, as you point out, most of the female heroes who were available to Wolf were queens or empresses or, you know, Catherine the Great or Queen Victoria. And we know that life and being a professional woman was much more difficult back then uh, than it is now. But on the other hand, someone might say, well, that that may be true, but Virginia Woolf, weren't there, you know, when she was writing, weren't there a hundred years of 
of Jane Austen's and the Brontes and George Eliot and, and all of these, wasn't she standing on the shoulders of this long tradition in English literature of successful women writers and women novelists? Um, but what you point out in your introduction is that's not necessarily how things would have looked to Wolfe and Wolfe's uh, literary society at the time. I think you have to distinguish between her and her society. Yeah. I think that's a key. Thing, oh, right. That she was um, unusually aware of the female tradition. Right. And in part, this is because of her relationship with Anne Thackeray Ritchie. This is the younger daughter, no, the older daughter, excuse me, of William uh, Makepeace Thackeray, the great mm-hmm. um, uh, 19th century um, English novelist. Um, Thackeray Ritchie has got, uh, wrote a, a couple of books um, sort of exhuming uh, 18th century women writers, mm-hmm. some of whom she'd known personally. Um, and she found a small audience for that. So um, Wolfe, I think, reads everything that Ritchie, uh, Thackeray Ritchie writes. Um, so she she knows about this. She reads this people. She feels it. But in her time, that is, you know, she's born in 1882. Okay. So she's coming into um, professional life um, after 1904 when her father dies. So she's in her young 20s. At this time, even what we now regard after the great feminist um, revolutions of the 70s and 80s, one might say, that, you know, George Eliot was not being read. She, George Eliot was being excoriated in many ways. Right. She was so old-fashioned. Even the Brontes, um, we can't compare the interest in them. The one, as I say in my book, the one author, the great British woman author, um, who men would agree to enjoy was Jane Austen. But she was sort of the lone star. And what, again, um, because she's a study, I mean, a student, Virginia Woolf is a student not only of um, the texts, but also the, the lives. She sees how hard it was to be George Eliot, how hard it was to be um, Mrs. Beaton, the famous um, uh, te- uh, recipe uh, uh, cookbook um, uh, author who dies the 28th of, of you know, um, poor pro fever and, you know, having been um, infected with syphilis by her husband. I mean, that was a normal women's life. Mm. Wolf knows that. Right. She sees all that. And so she knows um, whereupon she stands and she feels the need to do what Thackeray Ritchie had done in her generation to um, get past the, um, the shibboleths and the myths about 19th century women. So she writes, Brilliant essays, for example, on Christina Rossetti, mm. whose poetry had been not so much, not just forgotten, but excoriated as being religious drivel of a certain kind. Right. And Christina Rossetti is, is also part of that tradition of viewing uh, women writers as being siblings or uh, daughters yeah. or... Uh, yes. and, and Elizabeth Barrett yeah. Browning was viewed as just the yeah. wife of Robert Browning and so forth. Right. Exactly. Which is really interesting because Virginia herself might have uh, wondered if that was going to be her fate as well, because she was in a literary family and she was often, um, you know, one could imagine that she might have wondered, well, will I ever be viewed as anything other than Leslie Stevens' daughter, for example, or Leonard Wolfe's wife? Um, I don't think that um, when it comes to Leonard, I think we're at a different stage in her career. Mm. But clearly being Leslie Stevens' daughter, um, getting out of his shadow. And this is a very, very um, (sighs) patriarchal man. Mm -hmm. Her father, very, so in some sense, savoring the fact that within his family, tied to his side, he has this amazingly sensitive reader. So he loves that. At the same time, that's not what he wants from her. He would have liked it from his sons. Mm, Right. And he himself was dealing with a lot of uh, sort of frustration and and, uh, maybe a sense that he hadn't fulfilled how he had viewed his own promise. Well, if you've read To the Lighthouse, the um, mm. the character of Mr. Ramsey right. is Virginia Woolf's loving but incisive portrait of her father yeah. as a man of great academic eminence, 
who is tortured by his own insignificance. Mm. And it you describe too. There's a in your introduction. There's a, a what if here that I found kind of heartbreaking when you talk about her parents and how her father, uh, because of his his uh, followings of uh, John Stuart Mill and and the utilitarians, that he might have been viewed as someone who uh, one might have hoped that he might have taken a stronger interest in Virginia's education and and recognized her talent and. And instead, it it turns out that it, if he had those instincts, they were stifled by her mother. Uh, exactly. So, so how exactly. was what what kind of life did she have as a young girl, Virginia? And how did her parents play a role in who she was and and what kind of education she received? Well, first of all, her father is um, a, a central figure in intellectual life in London. I would say mm-hmm. I think that's fairly fair. He is. He is writing the Dictionary of National Biography. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he's compiling it, but he writes an enormous amount of it. Um, so this is considered to be, a, you know, a, a massive work of homage to the great tradition in Britain. Um, Henry James is a family friend. Mm. Um, and that's just one person. So Virginia Woolf is surrounded with brilliant men. Mm-hmm. Um and her mother fits into that perfectly as the perfect spouse, the mm. perfect um, partner to um, a man who wishes he were a genius. He, he wish, wishes he were a genius, but at least talks about genius and writes about genius and knows geniuses. And you, by perfect, you mean that she's supportive without having yes. ambition of her own. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, she is loving. She is never uh, critical. She bolsters him up. Um, she is um, uh, what keeps him alive, almost literally, right? Yeah. So um, Virginia is surrounded with literary talk. She reads, she has, this is an important point I make in several of my books, the ability of someone like Florence Nightingale or Virginia Woolf to have very, very um, uh close access to a great library. And in both cases, their fathers had this on the spot. So Mm. she has a tremendous amount of time to read. She has all the books to read that she can, and she reads them. She gets a lot of kudos in the family because she reads so voraciously, much more than any of her siblings. Mm -hmm. So she's getting a lot of that. At the same time, her mother is intent that none of her daughters, she has three daughters, become what they called a blue stocking. Right. Um, none of them are given, none of them are sent to school. None of them are given anything but cursory um, education. I mean, as as Virginia gets along, she demands Greek lessons, which are in, in ancient Greek now, um, uh, which are enormously important to her development. The influence of Plato on Virginia Woolf is, I think, a subject that somebody should be looking at. Um, but, um, she never has any female co-equals, as it were. Mm. She never goes to school and finds her great friends, um, which is, again, an experience that so many women, um, great writers, um, Georges Saint, for example, going to school is a huge thing for her. Right. So she never has that. She's an isolated autodidact right. who sees her brothers who have essentially no academic um, prowess or much interest. They're interested in many other things. I'm not putting them down, but literature is not their thing. Right. Who, just by being male, get to go to Cambridge where there is the living society of, um, of, 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 of brains, one might say, right. of minds who are thinking about the, the things that are most important to Virginia Woolf. And she, simply by being A, a woman, and being by her mother's daughter is excluded from that. And she is dissatisfied, and she expresses that dissatisfaction. So you make the case, you could say, one might argue that um, she was better off being alone in the the father's library where she could develop and she could avoid maybe some conventional wisdom that professors might have imposed on her or things like that. But that's not how she viewed it. She viewed it as she was being uh, deprived of something or that there was something absent by not getting that formal education, right? I think, and here, 
I mean, you have um, perhaps too much on Cambridge, the influence of Cambridge, yeah. on Virginia Woolf indirectly and directly on the Bloomsbury Group, of which she was such an important part. Um, so men of her class were sent to school, to private school, often boarding schools, very young. That had all kinds of disastrous effects upon them. Often they were violent. I mean, her husband said that his his uh, preparatory school was the most sordid place he'd ever, ever been in his life. So this is mm. where small boys from 6 to 12 are sent. So we're getting the picture. When they get to Cambridge and also to Oxford, of course, um, it's like emerging into um, a world of kindred spirits where there is no abuse, where there is no sexual um, uh uh, oppression, where you are free for the first time to be a mind and a body and do as you will and find your your co-evils and your kindred spirits. And it's a totally wonderful experience. So Cambridge is what Virginia Woolf wanted. It wasn't boarding school. That would have been horrible. Um, so many of the people in the men in the Bloomsbury group express how um, repressive and awful their lives in boarding school were. Mm. But once they get to Cambridge, it's a different view. It was a university that she wanted. It wasn't so much um, school. Right. And this was, let's talk a little bit about the economics of her family. And it, I know that when her brothers were being sent to school, there were some sacrifices that were made and, and so forth. And people, I want to make sure the audience understands exactly where Virginia Woolf's family was when she was growing up and how that might have affected some of her decisions in becoming a writer. Right. Um, so her family would be considered to be, if you could get this, lower upper middle class. I mean, the brief mm -hmm. hierarchy of the class is very complex. Her mother had fairly intimate, you know, cousins, aunts, who are were married into the, the top of the aristocracy. But her mother has come down in um, social uh, hierarchy when she marries um, Virginia Woolf's father. This is her second marriage. So um, the Woolf's, you know, they live in a big house in, in Kensington. They have, I think, eight live-in staff. Mm. Uh, they have a rented, beautiful rented home in Cornwall where they repair every summer in a huge caravan of family and belongings. Um, so they're definitely uh, uh, on the affluent side of uh, Victorian society, but their relatives on the whole are much grander, much richer than themselves. Mm. And what I think one of my main contributions in this book is to show the Thackeray importance, the, the importance right. of the Thackeray connection, because it was mini Thackeray's money. This is the money that, um, and the property that Leslie Stephen got on the death of his first wife, mini Thackeray. Um, she left him enough to make him what he called a gentleman status, someone who didn't have to work for money, who could be a scholar. And that enabled him in turn to attract um, uh, Julia, his second wife, who was a wealthy widow. Um, he had enough money to um, make it worthwhile for her to marry him. Um, and yet, there were always financial pressures upon them. And one of the big um, outlays was educating um, the two sons of Julia and Leslie's um, marriage, Adrian, uh, Toby and Adrian. Right. Um, educating them was a problem because they were not that, um, and, and I would hesitate to say they weren't bright, <laughs> but they weren't <laughs> academic. They didn't, they didn't love right. to learn. And so they had to be sent to fee-paying schools. They didn't get scholarships as their father had. Um, mm. They were um, a, a huge uh, drain. And what Virginia Woolf points out in A Room of One's Own is that this was the typical situation in um, other middle-class families of her time, that, all the, that a large proportion of the available money was spent on educating the boys, the young men, which implied not only sending them to school, but sending them on vacations, sending them abroad, giving them the freedom to find their talents and then supporting them in their uh, initial um, forays into the professional world. All of this was denied the women. And in some ways, the girls were kept at home and not given any tuition, not giving any education so that all the money 
could be spent on their brothers. Uh-huh. And Virginia is one of the people who comes out early and says that was not fair. Right. And that is one of the reasons why when you look at um, the history of culture, women play apparently so small a role. They simply were never um, in a situation to take advantage of the cultural opportunities. Right. And we feel the sting of that now, especially now, because here's Virginia, who we know is is one of the great minds, not just in her family, but in the world for all time. And here she is being asked to play a secondary role to these. Uh, I think you are very, uh, you know, you're you're kind and judicious in your book. But it, it becomes clear that the if anyone in the family should be sent to Cambridge, it's Virginia and yes. not, not the brothers. Um, okay. And she could have gone. She could have gone. Florence Nightingale could not have gone. She was born before those colleges opened. Virginia could have gone. She couldn't go to King's. She couldn't go to Trinity. But she could have gone to Girton on Unum. She absolutely could. Some of her cousins did. That was her mother and her father. It was her mother's decision and her father's agreement. And her father even wrote a letter at one point saying that he he believed in education, uh, that it should be universal, and her mother quickly squelched it, right? Yes, that is correct. Uh. Because her mother had no formal education of any kind um, and didn't believe that women needed it. Right. And as I say, was desperate. But what, what she felt that a woman's um, success in life was dependent upon her charm, her ability to find the right partner and to make um, a successful marriage and to have successful children. That was, the, that was the goal that she embraced herself. We're talking about Virginia Woolf's mother now. Um, and that she wished for her daughters. Right. And to be to be fair or to give the full picture, her mother did have many strengths. She sounds like an incredible woman, uh, you know, setting aside the issue of education. Uh, the way that she cared for sick friends is really remarkable. I'd say that, you know, both Leslie and um, Julia um, were atheists. They did not have religious faith, but they had an extraordinary moral ethic. Mm-hmm. Um and Julia lived it to the max within a Christian um, uh, cultural setting. She would be seen as a as a saint of some kind. Um, right. The work she did was extraordinary. She was an amazing woman. She was an amazing woman. Yeah. She was also deeply unhappy, deeply frustrated. And, you know, she died when she was 49 years old. Yeah. Okay, so in all of that, uh, with all of that as a background, let's turn to some of the women who uh, Virginia looked to as inspirations. Or, and here I'm not just talking about historical figures, but women in her family. And I want to I want to dig into a couple of these uh, specifically. Uh, and let's start with uh, the first example in your book, which reaches back to her great great grandparents. But although great great grandparents sounds like it would be really remote. These weren't exactly remote figures. These are people Virginia knew about and identified with. So let's start with Therese de la Tang. Am I pronouncing that correctly? De la yeah. Oh, de la um, So who was she and what did Virginia Woolf know about her? Well, those are two different things. Right. Because... Um, <laughs> I should have asked those separately. <laughs> these are the the Franco-Anglo-Indian connections. Okay, mm-hmm. they go back to the nineteenth, to the eighteenth century, the late nineteenth century, and it was discovered by one of Virginia Woolf's sort of third, fourth cousins, uh, Dalrymple. He's a great Indian <clears throat> scholar of um, uh, Anglo-Indian culture in India. He discovered that his family had. Um, uh, a Bengali ancestress. Yeah. So this would apply to Virginia Woolf. But this fact was not known to his family um, and was not known to Virginia's family. And the assumption was that these Indian ancestors were French. They were both French, Therese. Yeah. Um, and she was of French origin as well, but um, she was part Bengali. And you, you make the <laughs> and, point. you make the point that although today we might 
sort of celebrate that as as an example of multiculturalism and and look for some interesting influences that might have come through the generations at the time it was it was viewed more like miscegenation and it might have been a source of of embarrassment or shame that's something that the family would have taken some pains to cover up and this is something that was ongoing um not just in relation to the India's Indian subcontinent, but also to the Caribbean, to the Spice Islands. Mm-hmm. There again, so much um, racial intermarriage, well, not intermarriages, but basically uh, sex between white men and, and um, uh, indigenous women. Um, there was so much of that going on, and none of it was supposed to be going on, and so it was hidden mm. um, in families. Right. Um, you have to when you start digging, it starts coming out, but you, you have to dig. Um, so the bit coming down in her family was that there, uh, Virginia Woolf's family, is that there were these aristocratic, French aristocrats who had been exiled to France, to India from France because of their connections with the royal family, mm. that her great-great-great-grandfather had been one of Marie Antoinette's supposed lovers or had courted her and had been exiled for this reason. Um, and that her grandma, great, great, great grandmother had been um, a lady in waiting to um, the Queen of France. And all of this was absolutely not true. Um, <laughs> uh, who knows exactly why um, her great, great grandfather was chucked out of France, but probably nothing to do with his relationship with Queen. And certainly her great, great grandmother, Thérèse, was born and and lived until her middle 50s in uh, India. And all her children were born there, and all of her grandchildren were all born there. And, you know, Virginia Woolf's mother was born in India. Virginia Woolf's aunts and the maternal aunts were born in India. All of her aunties were born in India. It was an extremely Indian family. They spoke, the the um, the aunties, uh, Virginia Woolf's, the uh, great aunts of Virginia Woolf, um, Julia's aunts, um, when they wished to communicate among themselves, spoke in what they called Hindustani. Um, it was an extraordinarily rich background um, mm. from which, in a certain sense, Virginia Woolf was carefully cut off as a child because of this, I assume, and this is my assumption, uh, not wishing to get into the fact that there had been intermarriage right. um, with um, a Bengali person. So... Um, in a certain sense, she was cut off from that. But then, marvelously, she's reconnected with it because Leonard Wolf spends formative years of his life um, in what is now called Sri Lanka, which was then called Ceylon. He was a colonial administrator in um, Ceylon, and he grew to love Indian culture, and he wrote a marvelous book about it. And so she's reconnected it with it through Leonard. Um, so that's... A, a wonderful richness, as it were. So there's the French, because she indeed, I mean, her great-great-great-grandfather, Antoine uh, de Leton, was a French nobleman who had gone to the Indian subcontinent and become a great um, horse-breeding um, expert for the Sultan of um, Ayat. He, that is all true, but they stressed what was chosen to be stressed in the family was the aristocratic French. Um, right. And not at all the um, the marvelously rich, colorful Indian part. Um, and that's, I try in a very small way to make that um, a point in my book. Right. And and what Virginia knew about Therese was this was her great great grandmother was that she was a beauty with dark eyes, and she had this. Yes. The story was that she had this connection with the French um, aristocracy, and and she did live right. live to be almost a hundred, and she she was sort of an independent yes. woman herself, and and presided over these generations of yes. independent yes. and ambitious women. That those stories must have come down to Virginia. Well, this is again the fascinating thing to me: is what did come down, what did come down, mm. because as you just said, um, this great so this would be the grandmother of Virginia Woolf, the mother of Virginia Woolf's grandmother, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, she lived to be almost 100. She lived from the age of somewhere in her middle 50s. So for 40 years, she lived in Versailles, France. She was right there. And she was constantly involved with her family who had now um, almost all um, expatriated 
or repatriated, as they saw it, back to uh, Great Britain, mainly the southern part of England, um, they were all there. She was in contact with them. They sent their children to stay with her. Um, Virginia Woolf's grandmother almost certainly did go and stay with her grandmother and be educated in France. Um, they never spoke about it. Right. Huh. To her. They never spoke about it. And why do you think um, that is? Well, I'm suggesting it's because they knew. Oh. They knew the woman. They seen her. Um, I mean, one of the things that I point out, and this could be, um, you know, this a portrait could arise any minute in the family archives. One never knows. Um, yeah. But I have not been able to find a single portrait of this, apparently, according to family legends, the origin of the great beauty in the family. I mean, this is an, a key part of the legend, that there is this female beauty that gets passed from generation. And you can see it in the photographs. Mm -hmm. You can see it in the photographs. Um, and the style, not just the beauty, a physical beauty, elegance that is not fashion conscious or doesn't appear to be. Um, this comes down the generations right on to Virginia Woolf's nieces, um, according to the published record. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so this great beauty, it's not a single image of her. Mm -hmm. and she lived to be 97 or 98. Somewhere or other, you would think that someone would have taken a portrait of her. Right. But if there was one, we don't have it. Why? Yeah. That, and this is one of the few things out of my deconstructionist past, um, which has remained with me. I'm always looking for the things that aren't there right. anymore. Well, we we saw something similar when I did an episode on Elizabeth Barrett Browning, and her father had oh, yeah. something similar where um, he, uh, I hope I'm remembering this right now, he had uh, several uh, several children, but he denied them all, he, he didn't want any of them to get married. And the view is that he knew that they had this this Caribbean blood. And uh, he uh, was yes. so ashamed of it, and he had sort of come to regret his own role in that. And so he was, um, he wanted the line to die with him, basically. Um, wow. And, it, you know, it wow. just ended up horrible that, you know, the steps that he took to try to deny them this because of his right. shame. Wow. Wow. Uh, well, one thing I should note that William uh, Makepeace Thackeray, who was born in India, his father was a great. Um, uh, official in the East India Company, who had, before he married William Makepeace Thackeray's mother, um, a very, very strong relationship with an Indian woman yeah. um, and had a child by her um, and left that child a large sum in his will. And she, she married an English um, officer and was completely integrated into British society. This is... Yeah. Um, uh, that was common, I think, was so much more common than one had been led to believe. Yeah. Well, let's turn to the Thackerays. And I, I wanted to mention, just to kind of give my listeners a, a sense of your book and how it unfolds. One of the things I like about it so much is the way that the stories unfold. And when you start the story of the Thackerays, you start with 10 sheets of paper and a mysterious oh, yeah. discovery. So let's do that, but let's take a quick break. And then we'll come back with the story of the mysterious 10 sheets of paper, which went on to have a surprising impact on Virginia Woolf. Okay, we're back. So, uh, <laughs> Jillian Gill... Who discovered these 10 sheets of paper? What were they? And how does the discovery, uh, what does it tell us about Virginia Woolf's connection to 19th century literature? Okay. Well, first, let us recapitulate that the first wife of Virginia Woolf's father was Minnie Thackeray, mm. who was the younger daughter. And she and her sister, because there were no, there were no boys in the family, um, they, they were joint heiresses to their father's very considerable fortune. Right. And let me interrupt so, you for a second here, because I haven't talked a lot about Thackeray today uh, in the history of literature. I think we overlook him a little bit today. He, we know him for 
or as the author of Vanity Fair, and we know he was a, a, a kind of a dominant figure. But in in Wolf's day, he was really revered, wasn't he? He was he was basically the the prose stylist of his day, and and for the next few generations, he was viewed as a, a, a literary lion. Exactly. Um, yes. Um, and in her family, obviously, because of the immediate Thackeray connection, right. you know, there was a tiny, in a tiny quotation from William Thackeray, um, pinned to the door, uh, to the, in the hall of her home. Um, Thackeray was read to her by her father throughout her childhood. Um, uh, she read it to her sister. Uh, it was, uh, a, a, a key part of her cultural structure. And her step so, her step siblings would have been Thackeray's direct grandchildren. Only one of them. Okay, so oh. Minnie Thackeray and Leslie Thackeray had only one child. And this is the handicapped child who is sent into an institution. This is Laura oh, right. Stevens. Laura makes these Stevens. There's only one child from that marriage. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um when Minnie Thackeray dies, Leslie Stephen inherits all of his property, um, including her rights to her father's private papers and actually to have physical possession of those um, of these. Um, and these, as you said, Thackeray in um, the, the years after his death gets more famous, more, and his papers are of immense financial as well as literary interest. And so, um, when uh, Virginia Woolf's father dies in 1904, the house in Kensington is, op- is emptied out. But her brother, um, one of her brothers, her oldest brother, Toby, happens to go in, goes into a closet and finds 10 pages of Thackeray manuscript and then sells it, to jo- which he is able to sell to J.P. Morgan for what is considered in those days a very large sum. On this money, he is able to finance um, his own uh, studies to become um, an, uh, a lawyer, and he's also able to take himself, his brother, and his two sisters on a much longer uh, journey to um, Greece and Turkey. Um, mm. And this is a fateful journey. So this discovery of the manuscript is both illustrative of the extraordinarily structural financial importance of the Thackeray money throughout right. um, Virginia Woolf's childhood. Because William, I mean, uh, Leslie Stephen inherited the manuscripts Vanity Fair. So God knows what he got for that. Right, right. Um, and I that's love, the most important. I love the yeah. example uh, of this and, and the way your book kind of situates, sorry, situates Virginia in this context of literature as a way of making money, whether it's through the papers oh, yeah. or being an editor or being a, yeah. uh, you know, sitting um, as a publisher or through writing. And, and Virginia really, I think, adopted a lot of that um, that view that, that she could be a professional writer, that she could sort of earn her way into the establishment through uh, whether it's book reviews or other right. projects. And in this, I think she, we're coming to the example of the other sister, uh, the other daughter of William Makepeace Thackeray, who was an example for Virginia, the Aunt Annie and Minnie's yes. sister, Annie. So how did, what, right. how did she know her and, and what did she take from well, that she example? She was a infrequent, but um, always welcome and uh, regular um, cast. She was an adoptive aunt. She had no biological um, kinship. Mm-hmm. But in terms of, I mean, I hate to use the word role model, but she clearly was. She was, uh, as Thackeray's daughter, she started publishing. We're talking about Anne Thackeray now. Um, she started publishing when she was 16 years old. Mm-hmm. She established herself as a niche writer, one might almost say, um, from that time until her death in, uh, I think, 19... Uh, 15 or something like that. Um, uh, She had a successful husband, but nonetheless, in order to continue the rather luxurious life she lived towards the end of her father's life, she always relied on her, um, you know, the checks that came through the mail. Mm. Um, And that was fine. I mean, that was not, that was normal. Um, And it was normal for a woman 
And also she was part of a huge literary network. She was a close friend of Henry James. She was a close friend of Thomas Hardy. Um, she knew everybody. She knew everybody. And in a way, Virginia Woolf is going to take on all of those aspects. She's going to become a far better novelist than her adoptive aunt ever had been. She was a great memoirist, much better. She also um, worked to recapture the women writers of the past. And she made money. I mean, when she marries Leonard, she's the one that's making the money. He has almost no money. Mm. I mean, when they found the press, they get on a good financial status um, position. But basically, she is the one who has inherited money. The inherited money enables her to live independently and write, which she does feverishly, brilliantly, constantly without being held up by any kind of personal tragedy. She keeps writing. She follows in the footsteps of her aunt. And having that person in her life was formative. Hmm. Okay, so we are coming up on the end of our time here, and there's so much that we haven't covered, uh, which in some ways is good, because I hope that our my listeners will run out and I would encourage them to all go out and buy your book because it, it really is a great read and uh, there are a lot of stories and anecdotes and just information here that I didn't know. We, we also, we haven't touched at all on Virginia Woolf's madness or on the, I guess there are some revelations that you provide regarding uh, sexual abuse for Virginia and her sister. Um, and I'm wondering if, if if we stick to the women who shaped her world, if there were a couple of others that you want to mention that sort of preview for uh, our listeners who would stand out to you as people we haven't talked about yet, but who had an influence on Virginia Woolf. Since we have little time, um, weirdly, I think we should just leave Bloomsbury out of it mm -hmm. and maybe just concentrate on um, relationships that Virginia Woolf had um, in her 30s, 40s, 50s, with three um, notable women. Well, let's let's take it to two. Uh, Ethel Smith, who is um, was an, a remarkable composer, notably of opera, um, uh, uh, an out lesbian at a time when being an out lesbian was not that common, um, with extraordinary um, uh, links to French feminism, French lesbianism, um, etc. So. Ethel Smith becomes a very important friend of Virginia Woolf. And the correspondence that Virginia Woolf had with Ethel Smith, Ethel Smith keeps her letters, right? This is, you know, we say we know about things because people kept letters. Mm. Well, Ethel Smith was in love with Virginia Woolf and kept her letters, thank God. Um, so we know that the influence in that respect of music on Virginia Woolf, right? Mm. Opera, music. She was intensely musical. Um, she loved opera. She loved Barry. I'm talking about Virginia Woolf now. So that creative um, uh, influence around um, Ethel Smith, very, very important on all kinds of levels. And was Ethel, then, sorry to interrupt, was Ethel uh, Smith drawn to her because of her beauty, her personality, or because of her intellectual uh, life and accomplishments? Was, yeah. I think you just can't. And Virginia Woolf had an extraordinary effect on people. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. This is one of the problems with biography. One can never, unless there is a movie made, capture the just, well, you know, charisma is an overused word that she exercised right. over people she met. Okay. Um, now, the, the next one I'm going to talk about is, of course, uh, Vita, uh, Vita Sackville West, mm. um, mm -hmm. who is probably the great love of what can I say um, physical love of, of Virginia's life I mean she and Leonard I hope that my readers understand that I am I'm sort of in love with Leonard in a way and I am so happy <laughs> and I think you know the relationship between those two is a marvel yeah. but still I'm writing a book about the women who shaped the world not the men in a certain way right. so um, but her relationship as she is quite clear about from the beginning with Leonard was much, was not in a way um, sexual. She did not find him attractive. Um, he did not arouse passion in her. Vita did arouse passion in her. Mm. Um, and as a result, I'm sort of of the, I have a sort of kind of um, weird, you know, uh, neo sort of post-Freudian thing that, 
you know, sexual desire is a key to creativity. I, I mean, that's so hackneyed and yet so important to say. And Virginia Woolf is sort of known as what she called, you know, a cold fish. That's to say she was asexual, but she was intensely responsive to bodies. Um, and Vita's body, Vita's body just filled her with a kind of um, uh, creative um, uh, fervent. And it was while she was um, clo- in closest, um, as it were, relationship with Vita Stackville West that she wrote her great books. Mm. So there was an intellectual, creative um, uh, uh, current between those two, um, which was imperfect and which was short-lived, but of in- incredible importance to her development, especially as a novelist, as I, I would say. Right. Virginia Woolf is so iconic for us, but I think there were, it, it took us, you know, several decades to get there. Uh, and it's it's probably endured now since the 60s or 70s when you were talking about rediscovering Virginia Woolf. Right. But do you think that yes. it would surprise her to know that, that that's how she's viewed today? Oh, what a question. Would it have been a surprise? I think it would, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think it would. Um, she was... Uh, writing her novels was, in many ways, a torture for her. Um, it, uh, I mean, people have charted how her um, her, her Im- mental imbalance periods would often correspond with the time when she was wrestling with a book. And she was wrestling with a book that became Beyond the Act, which was published after her death around the time of her suicide. Now, it wasn't the main cause of her suicide, but it was obviously related to when a book wasn't going well and the fiction books tended not to go well mm. at the beginning it was always difficult for her. So I don't think she ever was confident in what she had written. Right. And the world and gave so, her no indication during her lifetime that, oh, something's happening here. You're being rediscovered. You're starting to be celebrated. That just didn't, that wasn't part of her experience, was it? No, no. Rather that the things that we now regard as I mean, her, probably the iconic text is um, A Room of One's Own. Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote that, and, you know, it was published by um, the Hogarth Press, her and the, the press that she had, uh, she and Leonard had established. Um, nobody much, as far as I can tell, um, in her group was that enthusiastic about it. Leonard, her sister, even Vita, was not. Mm. I mean, in some ways, she was espousing what we would, what I feel is a modern feminist position way before anyone much outside the most avant-garde feminist group of which, with whom, of course, she was in touch. I mean, you know, she she didn't come up with this all on her own. She channeled it. Um, I wish I could have gone into that much more uh, in depth. I mean, I have a lot of material on that. But, um, I wasn't able to because I had to, you know, finish a book before it got too long. Um, but, you know, she channeled things that only rang bells in people's mind across the world in the late 60s and 70s. Hmm. She was be- before her time on that. And, right. of course, one can see that, you know, she's writing at a time when fascism and communism are rising there were other things on people's minds. Right. So again, one mustn't be historicist and say, oh, why couldn't they have understood what she was doing? They had a lot of other things to think of, like Hitler right. <laughs> and Stalin. <laughs> okay, so I have one more question for you, a surprise bonus question. Uh, are okay. You, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. During a stay in London, you take up rooms in an apartment in Bloomsbury. One night, while investigating the wardrobe, you discover a passage to the early 20th century, and you find yourself encountering a young Virginia Woolf. She invites How you to... young? <laughs> um, I'll let you kind of play with that a little bit. I was thinking at least in her 20s, maybe a little older. Uh, yes. And you'll see why. She invites you to join her for tea and tells you there's room for one more 
but she will leave it up to you to decide whom among her friends to invite. You believe that this is your best chance to learn something more about Virginia or maybe just enjoy her company for a few hours. What guest will you pick and what conversation do you hope to have? Wow. Wow. I think Vita would be Vita. a good choice. Yeah. yeah so what age Vita are we talking about then? Well, so we're talking now um, probably around 40. Mm-hmm. I think around 40. Um, but this would have to be an unfiltered conversation. Yeah. Um, both of them, I mean, Vita is, as you know, um, never, she never comes out, right? Yeah. She never comes out. Um, uh, Ethel Smith comes out, uh, but Vita never comes out. She is a married woman. She's the wife of a diplomat. She is a great novelist. She's a great poet. Um, she has this extraordinary um, uh, life. But boy, if you got Virginia Woolf, I think one thing you'd be surprised of how, what could I call it? Um, the vocabulary would have surprised you, shall mm. I say. These are women who could say <laughs> anything in private. Do you, think, um, do you think you could have been there helping them along, and, and, or do you think you would have been a third wheel? Do you think you would be better off hiding behind a curtain and letting those two talk? You know, I think I would have put my oar in. I yeah. would. Yes, I absolutely would. Yes, I would have inspired by them. And I don't think that they, I think they fed off other people, yeah. both of them. Yeah. So they, they weren't so self-absorbed. They were willing to um, listen as well as talk. Um, and then there would have been a sort of um, fusion between us. It would have been marvelous. Yeah. I think if they figure once they figured out that you were from the 21st century, they yes. would have been filled with questions for you, and they right. probably would have been astonished by what you were able to tell them. I think so. I think so. Yes. Yeah. Wow, what questions. <laughs> okay, well, let's leave things there. The author is Jillian Gill, and her book is called Virginia Woolf and the Women Who Shaped Her World, available now at bookstores everywhere. Uh, Jillian Gill, thank you so much for joining me today on the History of Literature. This has been so much fun. Thank you. Okay, there you have it. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Jillian Gill for joining me. And for those of you who thought Agatha Christie... A biographer of Agatha Christie. Wouldn't that make an interesting show? Stay thirsty, my friends. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. I'm not the Dos Equis guy. Although I guess if they sign up to be a sponsor, who knows? Maybe we'll do a little product placement. I'm easy. <laughs> I go with the flow. Speaking of flow... The days are flowing by, aren't they? And the months and now the year. So as we leave 2019 behind and move into 2020, I hope you are doing well with lots of books on your nightstand or in the pocket of your winter coat or in your backpack or on your lap or in your hand. Keep them close and keep us close too. We've got some great episodes coming up like Saul Bellow and Nausgaard and Borges who are all in the works. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.